Welcome to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Tom Sherberger filling in for Sean Canan, who is on a special project. We're broadcasting from the WMNF studios in Tampa, Florida on this chilly Tuesday, January 30th, 2024. Today we have two pre-recorded interviews about how special interests are having their way with the Florida legislature. So we won't be taking any calls. First, we're going to hear from Jason Garcia, an independent journalist who has been tracking some of the most controversial proposed legislation. After Jason, we'll discuss the many, many public records exemptions the legislature is proposing this year with Barbara Peterson, executive director of the Florida Center for Government Accountability. So let's just go ahead and listen to Jason. Well, Jason, uh, we are one-third of the way through the uh, 2024 legislative session. Uh, As many people like to say, the scariest time of the year in Florida. Uh, And there's a lot to talk about, um, including the uh, search and destroy mission that the legislature and the governor are on for anything that they consider to be woke, Um, things that uh, companies are trying to uh, get for their advantage. But I wanted to start by talking about, uh, as you like to refer to him, the anger monster, the return of Ron (laughs) DeSantis from the campaign trail. Uh, There's been a lot of speculation about what this will mean. Uh, His presidential ambitions have uh, ended and he is back uh, full-time in Tallahassee, I assume, now. And what are you seeing so far? How is he asserting himself in this session? Yeah, well, you're starting to, to see quite a bit of that, uh, where, whereas we, ha- we hadn't basically seen him at all for months, but now every day he's getting back into the routine of, of holding some sort of press conference to talk about something in the legislature and then fielding questions where he can sort of make news. So one of the most recent examples is... Um, the Florida House of Representatives just passed a bill to essentially ban anyone under the age of uh, 16 from having a social media account. Um, and that's a big priority of the the Speaker of the House. And, and the governor used sort of a media availability to sort of throw cold water on the idea or at least express some concerns about the constitutionality. And I think you can interpret that as that same looking to just sort of build a little leverage with the legislature right now because he hasn't been engaged as much up to this point, right, by by sort of suggesting to the House Speaker that, you know, I, I might not be on board with your priority. That's that's going to, you know, from his perspective, create a few bargaining chips to uh, try and get some of what he wants done. The other thing that was really interesting is, like, within days of uh, the governor ending his presidential campaign, and um, you started to see some bills that we know have been written by his office because they've been things that um, – either he has pitched in the past or or that were part of his budget rollout, um, those bills started moving. Um, and two really jumped out jumped out at me. And uh, the first is um, this really sort of uh, dramatic expansion of the Florida State Guard. Um, and that's the that's basically the the state militia that the legislature resurrected. It was a World War II era force that was meant to supplement the National Guard during World War II. The, the legislature resurrected this three years ago at Ron DeSantis's request, and and he is uh, full. He is solely in command of the Florida State Guard. It was initially um, pitched as kind of a an emergency response uh, force, right, to help uh, help the state more nimbly respond to like hurricanes. Um, but it, it, the legislature, one year after creating this thing, it started to loosen the reins, and now it, it, it might drop them entirely. This bill would allow the governor to activate the Florida State Guard 
for any reason whatsoever. It would allow him sort of full latitude to send troops out of state if he wants. And it would also um, give uh, members of this militia these really powerful legal protections from uh, criminal prosecutions or civil lawsuits for, for, you know, things they do well on duty. And, and again, lots of this stuff we've actually seen, the governor has been pushing for this stuff for like three years now, and the legislature has been hesitant to give it to him. Um, and now he's back and this bill is starting to move. And, and the other one that well, really before, jumped out at me before last Before we move week, on to another bill, though, what do you think that he wants with his own guard? Is, is he looking to send troops to the Texas border for example, or what is it the, the critics uh, suspect that he's up to here? Yeah, I think that's what a lot of folks are, are thinking of right in this context, because, you know, this is starting to move just as as uh, tensions are really rising in Texas over the border. Where you've got the, the governor sort of refusing to back down to a, the governor of Texas, refusing to back down um, to a Florida Supreme or I'm sorry, a United States Supreme Court ruling. Um, and, and setting up this showdown with the federal government, and and Ron DeSantis has said in answer in response to questions that you know he supports Texas and he's going to provide support to them. So this legislation starting to move in this context. I think a lot of folks uh, suspect that Ron DeSantis would like to use the Florida State Guard to insert himself into that national story, which is becoming like a a really big deal on the right. Right. Okay. I interrupted you. You were moving on to the next bill. Yeah, sorry, I was, I was sort of steamrolling through. That's okay. Um, the other one, and this and is I, what I this say, is what Jay, sort of. I've been so impressed with the, your ability, uh, reading your newsletter and listening to your podcast, how you're managing to juggle all of these bills because there are literally hundreds of bills that are filed every year in the session, and it's hard to pick and <laughs> choose right. which ones you're going to focus on. And there are a lot of bills to cover. But go ahead. Yeah. I, Oh, I appreciate it. That's very kind of you to say. Um, and the other one, and this is what sort of prompted that that anger monster joke. Um, uh, that, that I made a couple of days ago because um, it is just sort of, for my money, the most ludicrous bill of the session, but it's one that comes directly from the, the governor's office. And it's essentially it's essentially turning transportation planning into a culture war. Um, it's this bill, the, the number is House Bill 1301. Um, it's a transportation package, which are normally like uh, pretty anodyne things in the legislature. It's usually like, you know, 75%, you know, mechanics of government stuff that are just meant to make the state run a little bit more smoothly and maybe, you know, 25% favors for vendors and other special interests. Uh, and that there's a lot of that in this House Bill 1301, but then there's a bunch of culture war stuff. So just for instance, it would uh, it would threaten to cut off funding for airports and seaports that simply follow federal public health guidelines, like the CDC or the U.S. Department of Health issues guidelines. Um, and if these airports and seaports follow them, they could lose their funding from the state, right? Um, it would forbid the, the State Department of Transportation from factoring in, you know, carbon emission reductions into its transportation planning, even if the federal government requires it in order to get uh, federal funding for road projects, which is, you know, the biggest source of funding for the state's transportation budget. Um, it would even block like local transit agencies, uh, like like you, you know your local bus agency, or you know if you're in South Florida, Triwheel, from from doing stuff like just sponsoring a booth at a Pride event, right? It is it is all this stuff that uh, may, makes no sense. It, it's all self defeating, right? It it risks it risks uh, losing billions of dollars in federal funding. It also, you know, the reason a bus a bus agency sponsors a table at events is to try and get more folks riding mass transit, which you know, lowers the cost to taxpayers. It lowers congestion on the roads. It's literally a win-win situation all around. And and we want to cut that stuff off solely because, you know, we don't want them supporting a pride event somehow. I mean, it's just, 
it's just an absurd bill. And and that one, like I said, it was written by the governor's office. It's, it's literally posted on their, their budget website right now. And it's moving. So it looks like uh, that's going to go through. Absolutely. Yeah. Both of these bills, we just talked about the state guard and the sort of woke uh, airports bill um, started moving within, within days of the governor essentially coming back to Tallahassee after ending his presidential campaign. Now, another thing that happened right after he came back was he put out the word that he was not going to support legislation to fund Donald Trump's legal bills. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. This, oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, just can you explain the background of this? Who, whose bill was this? Who's really behind it? And what were they thinking? Yeah. And I should say, I haven't paid super close attention to this bill just because it was one of those ideas that seemed so preposterous on its face that um, it seemed even even in this climate, it seemed unlikely to pass. But it sure looks like it's an idea that may have come from Jimmy Patronis, the the Florida's chief financial officer. And it was to create this uh, uh, public funding pot for um, candidates for president accused of or, or, or facing political persecution. It was... Um, it was, uh, you know, clearly aimed at sort of raising this idea that we're going to give Donald Trump a bunch of public money to pay his legal bills. Um, uh, the reason I, I sort of think it came from Jimmy Petronas is, A, he started, uh, he started promoting this bill as soon as Ron DeSantis dropped out of the race and it became safe for him to be fully on Team Trump. But also it's just kind of a classic Jimmy Petronas bill. He is known in Tallahassee as by far the most blatant panderer in the whole uh, in the whole you know, state capital. So this is a, the sort of bill that's exactly up his alley. But what was interesting is, you know, immediately he starts, uh, he starts talking about this. And, and like you said, Ron DeSantis decided to weigh in and uh, in sort of an uncharacteristic way, he was sort of like belligerent on Twitter about it, but also like, you know, kind of, kind of funny about the way he did it too. And essentially killed the bill immediately by, by, by essentially saying he would veto it if it passed. Um, and I think some of that, you know, you might be seeing some echoes of 2026 already. You know, one of the concerns for Ron DeSantis is he might be an early lame duck now that the presidential race is over. He can't run for reelection. He's still got, you know, three sessions counting this one to go. But a lot of folks are going to be uh, turning their attention to the 2026 race. And Jimmy Petronas is a guy that would really like to run for governor. Uh, but, you know, there's been a lot of chatter for a long time now that, um, Casey DeSantis might run for governor as well, too. And I, I assume Ron DeSantis is going to be very defensive of, of of crowding out, of trying to push back against anyone who tries to sort of establish any kind of position in that race already. Certainly, at least until he's decided who, you know, if Casey's going to run or, or who he wants to run, you know, who he wants to support. Well, let me introduce you. This is Tom Sherberger. I am uh, filling in for Sean Canan today on uh, Tuesday Cafe, and we're talking uh, to uh, Jason Garcia, who is an independent journalist, and uh, you can see his work on Substack, uh, including uh, a, a, a regular podcast that he's done. It's called Seeking Rents, and uh, this is a good bridge to that title, uh, Jason. Seeking Rents is a, a way for corporations to take care of themselves, right? Explain why you call your work Seeking Rents. Yeah, yeah, it comes from a term in economics called rent-seeking, and what rent-seeking refers to is when you know, a, a big business or some other uh, wealthy special interest uses their wealth and influence to uh, get laws changed in a way that allow them to capture more wealth for themselves, uh, often at the expense of someone else. Usually that someone else tends to be either taxpayers or consumers, workers, or even small businesses trying to compete with these larger businesses. So like the classic example you can think of is 
a business writing itself a tax break that, that the legislature then passes into law. Yeah, and so I would, I think you've talked about how maybe ninety percent of the legislation that goes through uh, Tallahassee is basically uh, seeking rents. It's, it's companies trying to get an advantage for itself. So what are we seeing this year? What What are the most outrageous examples that you have seen so far? Yeah, I think um, there are two, you know, there's, <laughs> there, there are a lot, but there are two that have really sort of, um, sort of come to the forefront, two sort of corporate issues that are, um, that have become um, really intense fights, but are advancing despite sort of uh, all the opposition they're generating. The first is, um, and it, it's sort of wild to say this, but is an attempt to, to roll back the state's child labor laws. And we've got a, a couple of bills moving through this. One is um, is already we're only we're only starting the second third of the legislative session, and it's this bill is already ready for a vote in the full House of Representatives. It would essentially allow um, 16 and 17 year old high school students to work uh, to be made to work full time schedules as if they were adults, even while they're in school. So you could have companies making you know, a high school sophomore work 40 hours a week or, or 10 hours a day, even when they're in school. Um, there is also another bill um, that is also rapidly moving um, that uh, records, this was actually obtained by Orlando Weekly, the uh, newspaper where I am in Orlando, that, sh- that, that shows this comes from the home building industry, but it would allow 16 and 17 year olds uh, to be put to work on residential construction sites, which, um, you know, are obviously a pretty dangerous work site. And there are all sorts of laws around sort of how minors can be employed in particularly dangerous professions and construction is one of the most dangerous. Um, both of those bills have uh, have gotten a lot of pushback, but they have kept advancing despite that. So it seems, um, it seems very likely uh, one or both of those are going to pass this year. And we're, we, we've, we've learned a lot about them. The, the main child labor bill was written by um, this this right wing think tank that uh, called the Foundation for Government Accountability, which um, is funded primarily by a handful of uh, billionaires and, and conservative family trusts, um, but it is also being pushed really hard by the state's tourism industry and, and by lobbyists for restaurant chains like um, Outback Steakhouse and Olive Garden. Um, and as I mentioned, the other one is is coming from the home builders. The other big uh, big issue we're seeing is is an attempt to essentially eliminate all sorts of local laws that exist in a number of communities around the state that require government contractors, so companies profiting off of government contracts, to pay higher wages or provide better benefits to their workers. So you might sometimes hear them called living wage ordinances or responsible wage ordinances. And they they would require, typically they require a company that um, wants a contract from a local government to pay, to pay, you know, um, two or three dollars more than the minimum wage and provide health insurance to their workers. You know, it it does not apply to the broader private sector. It is solely to companies that are contracting with these local governments. And they've been adopted in most of the state's big cities and urban counties where the cost of living is obviously, you know, a lot higher in Miami than it is in, you know, Pensacola or Panama City. Um, But there are bills moving through the legislature that would erase all of those living wage and benefit laws. Um, The the big bill uh, that would do this is House Bill 433, um, and it is moving uh, pretty quickly through the Florida House. This is another one. We actually personally just got records back from the House to show this bill was was uh, written by the Florida Chamber of Commerce, which is a, a front group for essentially the state's largest businesses like Publix, like Disney, like Florida Power and Light. 
Um, but also working with that same foundation for government accountability, that that, that same right-wing think tank that wrote the child labor bill uh, also is working on this issue. Um, so those are the those are the two really big things. Weakening child labor laws and eliminating local wage and benefit protections for workers are, are the two big corporate issues this year so far. And the child labor bill, is that uh, in response to staff shortages? Is that their, their response to not being able to hire enough people is to get children to work for them? Yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly right. It's uh, a lot of what we're seeing this session is is clearly being driven by the fact that unemployment is so low and the labor market is so tight that um, workers have more leverage than they've ever had, particularly lower income workers. When you look at the uh, at the the safety nets that were provided through the COVID pandemic, and now that the the economy has rebounded so strongly and and unemployment is so low, workers have the ability to demand higher wages and better benefits right now. And so these bills are all designed to sort of undercut that leverage, right? So, you know, if you're if you're outback steakhouse and you're you're having trouble finding enough folks to wash dishes or bust tables or something, you could obviously raise pay or offer better benefits to attract more workers or you could get the legislature to change the law so you can use more cheap teen labor instead. Well, um I guess that's one way to solve the labor shortage. But it also puts children right. at risk, I, I suppose you might say. I mean, some of this could could lead to uh, children being on uh, roofs and putting installing. I, I just, I've always thought that roofing has got to be one of the more dangerous uh, businesses, but uh, that, I guess that's what they want to do. Now, this also is related to the continuing uh, examples of the legislature telling local governments what to do. Uh, especially right. the, the second bill you talked about. And there's uh, some other legislation, I understand, uh, that would weaken laws aimed at um, regulating uh, fertilizer, right? The, because the fertilizer goes on your lawn and then it ends up in the bay and it creates all sorts of environmental problems. What's happening with that? Yeah, that's exactly right. So so what you're describing, when the legislature uh, passes laws that essentially limit the power of uh, cities or counties or local communities to do something that's called a preemption. Um, and we're seeing a number of preemptions moving this year. The, the, the legislation I just mentioned that, that would erase those local living wage and responsible wage ordinances, that's a preemption. Um, the fertilizer preemption, there is not actually legislation filed that we've seen publicly yet, but it is, this is a, everyone expects this is floating around. And, and part of that is Last year, um, at the very end of session, um, right right as they were finalizing the state budget, uh, a bill suddenly surfaced that hadn't been filed publicly anywhere before then that uh, essentially preempted states, or I'm sorry, preempted uh, cities and counties from uh, adopting any uh, what, are, what a lot of folks call like rainy, rainy season fertilizer bans, essentially bans or, or local ordinances that either ban or severely restrict how often you can fertilize your lawn during the summer. We have them the a lot in the Tampa Bay area because it's a real problem it, trying to protect Tampa Bay it, from this fertilizer. Exactly, exactly. And so because of the way that was done last year, that was a one-year ban. Um, and there is uh, there is a lot, of, uh, a lot of suspicion that there will be an attempt to, at minimum, extend that ban, um, if not make it permanent. Um, like I said, we haven't actually seen that legislation yet, but we know it's a big issue to companies like True Green and to, to lobbying groups like the Florida Retail Federation. Um, so I expect, uh, I expect we'll see something addressing that before the end of session. Um, just, to, just to stay on preemptions, um, you know, 
We're also seeing there's a bill moving through that would expand a preemption that prevents cities and counties from doing anything about pollution from plastic bags, plastic bottles, uh, styrofoam food containers. This is essentially a, a, a complete preemption on doing any uh, on regulating anything at all to do with any kind of food or retail container. It's it's uh, just an enormous preemption. Um, and you know we alluded to uh, some of the culture war stuff. You you even see sort of preemptions intersect with culture wars where there is a, a preemption bill moving through the state legislature that would forbid local communities from taking down Confederate statues and other Confederate uh, memorials to Confederate war generals. Which has come up so in the preemption past. preemption is a, yeah, is, is that, is a major is that issue. Seem to, is that one have uh, DeSantis's blessing this time? Uh, because we did have a Confederate monument in uh, Tampa that was removed several years ago. It was uh, placed at a family cemetery in, in Brandon, so it wasn't destroyed, but I understand this one was actually prompted by the recent removal of a Confederate monument in Jacksonville. Is that right? Yeah, that's my understanding. I, to my knowledge, um, I don't. I'm not aware of, of Ron DeSantis being directly involved with this legislation. It does sort of seem like uh, like the sort of idea that would be kind of right up the, the right up the alley he's carved out for himself the last four years or so. Um, but as far as I'm aware, this does come out of Jacksonville. This was actually an idea that. Uh, if, if I'm remembering correctly, first surfaced last session, but didn't go anywhere. But um, the bills are now moving this year, and it it, it seems like uh, this is likely to be a big push. And it's, um, you know, this is just like a, a a wild preemption in the sense of the scale of it. It basically it basically would take away cities and counties' ability to do any kind of regulation of of. Uh, what the, the legislature has deemed historic monuments and memorials, which are basically anything that's been around for 25 years or more. Um, and, you know, one of the one of the talking points the bill sponsors are, are are saying is that this isn't about Confederate war statues. This is about American history. It's to protect all memorials, except it's it's written in such a way that, you know, you know, the newer statues and newer memorials that have gone up, which are probably more likely to honor folks like civil rights leaders, aren't protected by this legislation. But all, all those old uh all those old uh, pro-Confederacy statues, those uh, those would be protected. Yeah, the, the monuments to uh, traitors and white supremacists would be protected. But now there's, <laughs> That's right. you've also written about uh, legislation that would allow uh, some predatory lending uh, companies to make even more money off of uh, poor people. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, there's a couple of uh, a couple of those around this year. Um, one is sort of interesting and is moving. This deals with um, what are called a lot of times uh, consumer loan, uh, consumer finance companies. These are, you, you've probably seen them in like strip malls and stuff like companies like One Main or Opportune. And they they target uh, low-income borrowers with uh, poor credit histories who can't qualify or, or can't seem to, to get credit cards or traditional bank loans. Um, you know, generally speaking, uh, there's strict strict limits on how much interest uh, lenders can can uh, charge. Eighteen percent is usually the cap. Anything above that is considered usury. Um, these these consumer lending companies have the ability to go above that and charge higher interest rates uh, on their loans up to twenty five thousand dollars. This legislation moving through um, through Tallahassee this year would allow them to raise their interest rates even more. It would uh, on. There are, there's a sliding scale involved, so it's a, it's a little bit sort of gets a, gets tactical to get into the exact changes. But the net effect would be on most of the loans they do, they could uh, nearly double their their interest rates. Um, and so, what's interesting about this bill is um, 
This actually passed the legislature last year as well. Um, these, these consumer lending companies convinced the legislature that this was um, a, a good way to expand credit to folks. Um, but Ron DeSantis ended up vetoing the bill. Um, what was interesting is, you know, Ron DeSantis made the case last year when he vetoed it that uh, these higher interest rates would lead to more consumer indebtedness, and he was not going to allow that to happen. Um, a lot of folks uh, suspected, though, that part of the issue was the sponsor last year was a guy by the name of Joe Gruters, a Republican state senator from the Sarasota area, who was at the time one of the only, maybe even the only Florida legislator who had endorsed Donald Trump over Ron DeSantis. And, you know, Joe Gruters was telling anybody who would listen that all Ron DeSantis was vetoing all his bills and budget projects as retaliation for that. Um, he did get a lot a of different veto bills. Let's, 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 I mean, he's got a point there, don't you think? <laughs> he, he did, you know, I, I, budget vetoes are an interesting thing in that there's so much in the budget and there are so many things that get vetoed. Uh, you can you can sort of make a pretty pretty strong argument one way or another about you know whether or not it looks like I got over over punished or if it you know if I'm within line with everyone else. I I do think there's no doubt that that vetoes are often politically motivated. I have no doubt that some of his uh, some of his stuff was vetoed uh, because of his decision to endorse Donald Trump. You know his his evidence for it is is evidence that's kind of like a Rorschach test, right? It's here. It's You could look at it and see what you want to see there. Sure. Uh, um, so this has been kind of a depressing okay. uh, uh, array of bills that we've been talking about. Is there any any good news out of some of the legislation? Is there anything that, that you would say, well, okay, the legislature is trying to help us on this one? Yeah, there are there are a number of uh, of good bills moving. Um, you know, the, the, the nature of, the, of places like state legislatures and even Congress is that most of what they pass is is usually pretty good stuff. That's the stuff that everybody sort of comes together on. But what gets attention is is the negative stuff, right? It's it's the old adage, you know, ninety nine ninety nine planes land. That's that's expected. One crashes. That's that's a huge deal, right? right. So there are there are good bills moving. Um, you know, one that I've sort of uh, taken an interest in recently because um, because I didn't realize. Uh, because I've become more interested in occupational licensing and how much rent seeking happens around sort of maintaining, uh, you know, maintaining barriers to entry. There are a couple of good bills uh, moving that would make it easier for formerly incarcerated folks um, to to obtain occupational licenses to do jobs like, you know, become a barber or a hairstylist. Right. Um, and they're, they're removing some of the protectionist barriers that that existing incumbent providers use to keep competition out. Um, so that both, you know, increases the number of providers, which increases choice for consumers. It also helps uh, formerly incarcerated folks get back on their feet, reduces sort of the chance of future recidivism, which also can cost taxpayers a lot of money. So that that's really good to see some of that stuff moving. Um, one bill that that I think uh, I've made the case is the most important bill of session. It has not been given a hearing yet, but you know, even the fact that it was filed is a significant idea is um, a Republican representative by the name of Spencer Roach from down in southwest Florida, where, you know, Hurricane Ian just leveled the state, has filed a bill to create essentially a public option for hurricane insurance in Florida. Um, the, the the very sort of short description is it would allow anyone in Florida to buy their windstorm insurance from the state's insurance company. Um, Citizens, uh, right. That's right. Yep. Exactly. I, I'm not sure if his bill, the, the reason I'm being a little vague is I'm not sure if his bill would use citizens or, or create a different model, but but that's the idea. Right now we have a situation where 
you can only get public insurance if uh, if if you cannot find essentially you can't find anything on the private market, and we end up in a situation where the private market covers all the profitable stuff and then leaves all the all the the dangerous, risky stuff to taxpayers. Um, this would allow anyone uh, in the state to get their hurricane insurance this way. Um, it would create a situation where affordable uh, insurance would become affordable for literally everyone, um, while also making the public option more secure because it would start to build more uh, diverse risk. This is an idea that has been around for literally more than a decade, but it, it always faces enormous opposition from the insurance industry. Um, but to see a Republican file legislation like that, I think, is really a, a big sign that, you know, this is an idea whose day is coming. Um, it would be nice to see that bill get uh, at least even a single hearing this year. Uh, maybe that'll happen. Seems seems pretty unlikely at this point. But like I said, just just seeing folks start to acknowledge uh, that this is probably where this is probably an inevitability in Florida. And so the sooner we get there, the less painful it is for, you know, Florida residents. Right. But, but that's sort of like socialized uh, property insurance, isn't it? Wouldn't that be the objection from some Republicans? Yeah, yeah. And that, that's what you're going to hear from insurance industry lobbyists, too. But the reality is we already have socially a socialized property insurance. It's just done in a way where we're socializing the losses but privatizing the profits, right? So, so right now, the, the current situation, as I mentioned, not only do we allow insurance companies to cherry pick the most profitable stuff, we also then subsidize those insurance those private insurance companies with public reinsurance. And then we also backstop them. If they fail, we end up picking up the claims that they didn't cover, right? So all of this is subsidized and socialized already. It's just done so in a way that favors the insurance industry, or or I should say, to be more level, in a way that prioritizes the needs of the insurance industry over the needs of, of policyholders and homeowners, right? And the, the logic is always What's good for the insurance industry will then be good for consumers, right? It's, it's the same sort of trickle-down approach we see a lot of times. Um, this would prioritize the needs of the homeowners and the policyholders. So this idea that that Florida's insurance market isn't already socialized is, uh, is a complete misunderstanding of how the market already works. This would just be a different form of socializing it. This might be a real fix for the uh, property insurance crisis we're having. Uh, we could we could spend all day talking about these things, and if you want to follow uh, more of, uh, of of Jason's reporting, uh, well, all you have to do is Google uh, "seeking rents." Uh, you'll find it pretty quickly. He has a newsletter you can subscribe to, or you can listen to his podcasts. Uh, we've been talking to Jason Garcia about the Tallahassee uh, situation with the legislature in 2024. We appreciate the time you've given our listeners today, Jason, and we hope to talk to you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe, and I'm your host, Tom Sherberger, filling in for Sean Canan today. Today we're listening to pre-recorded interviews, so we are not taking any calls. Our next guest is Barbara Peterson, Executive Director of the Florida Center for Government Accountability, and she's been tracking the many, many exemptions the Florida legislature is proposing to our public records laws. Let's give a listen. So, Barbara, thanks for joining us today on Tuesday Cafe. I really appreciate it because I know uh, for someone who is following uh, what's going on in the legislature, this is a very busy time. Unfortunately, you're right. There would be, you know, if if we didn't have dozens and dozens of proposed exemptions to, to our right of access, both to records and meetings, 
I'd be, uh, you know, on a beach somewhere uh, instead of my dark little office sitting in front of my screen. So the Florida Center for Government Accountability has put together a handy uh, list of bills that uh, you guys are watching. Uh, and it's literally too long for me to uh, go through all of them. But we're going to try to cover some of the highlights uh, or you might consider them lowlights of uh, public records uh, exemptions. Florida has been known for many years as having some of the uh, most open public records laws in the country, but the legislature every year uh, works uh, extra hard to try to uh, exempt some of those records. So, um, Barbara, let's start off, if you can, by talking about uh, one that you were particularly concerned about. I think uh, the most concerning is a it's a it, there are two bills that are tied together um but the effect of the two is to create an exemption for information that would identify a law enforcement officer involved in a lethal use of force. So in other words, we have a police officer who shoots and kills someone while in the line of duty but the identity of that officer would be exempt from public disclosure. Now, this seems so, to be in direct response to a recent Florida Supreme Court decision regarding Marcy's law, which is a constitutional amendment to protect the victims of crimes, which a lot of law enforcement agencies around the state were interpreting as they can protect the identities of law enforcement officers involved in right. shootings, right? So That's is, exactly right. Has, exactly. Has, are they being that direct and saying, okay, Supreme Court says we can't do this anymore, so we want you to do it for us? Is that? Well, the, the Supreme Court said, you know, this interpretation of Marcy's law is incorrect. Um, so if the legislature wants to do something about it, then they can. And, and under our constitutional scheme, only the legislature can create exceptions to the public's right of access. Um, and those exceptions either have to be in the Constitution or in statute. And Marcy's Law is in the Constitution. And, and before it's Marcy's Law, though, Barbara, not to interrupt, but before yeah. Marcy's Law came around, there was no question. Police officer was involved in a shooting, you would find out that police officer's name, right? It, unless the officer was an undercover officer? Yes, absolutely. And um, Marcy's law is intended to in, uh, to protect, as you said, victims of crimes, not law enforcement officers. It still baffles me how we could think of a law enforcement officer on duty as a crime victim when that officer is there to respond to a crime. Um, it, it really makes no sense. And, and it would create a secret police force, basically. I mean, use of force, um, lethal use of force, is about as bad as it gets. And if we can't know who the officer is who was involved in a lethal use of force, what kind of investigation was done, if the officer had done it before, we ha would have no idea. And law enforcement... You know, the whole idea behind the public records law is government accountability. So we can look at the records and see what our government is doing and hold them accountable if they're not representing our interests. It's interesting. Now, that law, all law enforcement agencies have taken this approach. I believe the sheriff's office in Pinellas County 
disagrees with that and agreed with the Florida Supreme Court. Correct. Uh, so correct. is this a bill that has uh, the powerful backing of uh, leaders of the legislature or is this just a, a kind of a, a just not going to happen? What, what's your take on this? Um, it has the backing of a very powerful uh, union, the police union. I mean, you know, with, with that case that went to the Supreme Court, the city of town, the two cases at issue in that in that lawsuit um, took place in Tallahassee and the city of Tallahassee was going to release the names of the officers pursuant to a public records request. And the police union stepped in and said, you can't do that. These were officers hurt in the line of duty. Um, I don't know that they were even hurt. Uh, I know one was not. Um and therefore, they're victims under Marcy's law. And so, it, like you said, it made its way all the way to the Supreme Court. But the issue was forced by the police union. And it's the police union that's behind this bill, I'm told. And unions don't have a lot of uh, influence over Tallahassee or the legislature, except the police union must have a lot of influence over the legislature. Right. Right. And it just depends. You know, these sure. these are not partisan issues. Open government is not a partisan issue. Sure. It's supported by, you know, people from both parties and it's derided by people in both parties. Uh, and it seems, though, that even in a legislature that's fairly dysfunctional, the one thing that they can all agree on is exceptions to the to the constitutional right of access. And there are so many bills filed this year. We have, you know, I, 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 I haven't even counted them all count. up on your it list. Is. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what else are you yeah. concerned? What else are you looking? And by by the way, uh, let me reintroduce you. This is uh, Barbara Peterson. She has been a longtime advocate for First Amendment issues in Tallahassee, and she is now the executive director at the Florida Center for Government Accountability, which is also well known for publishing the Florida Trident which broke the biggest political story of the year last year involving the former Republican Party chairman. Um, so what else are you looking looking at, Barbara? Well, we're looking to it. You know, there's um, for years now, um, every year, the legislature uh, creates or attempts to create a public records exemption for the home addresses of various uh, uh, state and local government employees and officers. A um, couple of years ago, there was a bill filed that would have exempted the home address of a legislator. Um, and, you know, people say, well, people should be secure in their homes. And I agree with them. But creating all of these exemptions for home addresses doesn't make people safer. And they already have um, that exemption for a lot of, uh, for example, law enforcement officers. Uh, right. Their names right. will not be listed on, say, the property appraiser's website. Um, correct. So, yeah. So That's there is, absolutely correct. And there are classes, classes of people who, you know, law enforcement, judges, uh, you know, prosecutors, I can understand because these people interact with, you know, the criminal fringes of society on a daily basis. But a middle manager in, in you know, a local government, um, you know, we've got uh, county and city attorneys this year. Um, what else? Uh, members of, um, uh, let's see, military service members. Anyone who served in the military after 9-11, home That's addresses would be exempt. 
a lot of people. And that's the point I think that I was going to make um, that um, when the legislature creates an exemption, it's putting a burden on the custodial agency to protect the exempted information. And if you're making a public records request for a bunch of personnel files, for example, and the custodian of the record has to go through and exempt all of this information, it takes more time and it costs more money to get access to very basic records. Uh, and it's, you know, the Florida Gaming Control Commission, um, county administrators, appellate court clerks, clerks of the circuit court. It just goes on and on and on. Medical examiners, the Florida Commission on Human Relations. That's just this year. Wow. That's a lot of people. Um, it's a lot of people. Oh, ACA, Agency for Healthcare Administration. Um, it's just sort of stuns me. Um, I've never seen this many all at once. Uh, and I would hazard to say that most of them will pass, um, as do a lot of bills that are just, you know, questionable at best, if not downright scary when it comes to public policy. But like I said, I think the scariest one is the identity of, of law enforcement officers. This is at the same time that there's legislation filed that would do away with these community oversight boards, the law enforcement oversight boards. I think Tampa has one. Yep. Um, uh, why? I don't know. They don't have any power um, and they play a very important role in 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 communities and the legislature without any real reason is going to do away with well, them. Police, unions don't, police don't, unions don't like them and as uh, in tampa they have the city council has been trying to strengthen uh their uh advisor their oversight board and and now the this is one way to deal with that so, but another uh, bill, with it. another bill that yeah. i've noticed that seems particularly uh concerning is one dealing with defamation. Oh, yes, yes. Um, um, the First Amendment Foundation. Knowingly publishing or disseminating a false narrative or defamatory material about a public figure. So what's that all about and um, what's driving it? Um, well, thin-skinned politicians are driving it, I think. I don't know what else is driving it. Uh, they want to do away with the Times v. Sullivan standard. This was a a pet peeve of Governor DeSantis's. Um, and last year, the legislation was, similar legislation was filed. And thanks in a large measure to the efforts of Bobby Block and the First Amendment Foundation, uh, that legislation didn't go anywhere. And we were a little surprised to see it um, pop back up against, again this year. If you think about it, it's it's not just like the Miami Herald or, or you know, the, the Tampa Bay Times that it's affected by this. It's bloggers. It's, you know, community activists. It's, you know, the, the small religious radio station. All of any publication. WMNF. Affected by this. Yeah. So that seems very concerning. And is it, does it seem to be moving or? Uh, the House bill, uh, uh, Representative Andrade's bill has had a couple of committee hearings. 
Um, and it's not moving in the Senate yet, but we're halfway through the two-month session, so there's still a whole lot of time. Um, and it would turn defamation on its ear, basically, because it would make it really simple to sue someone simply because you didn't like what they said about you. Yeah, um, it it turn it takes the Sullivan standard, which is you have to have malice, right? You have to show right. that. So in this case, it would just be well, you got it wrong. You maybe look bad, so I can see you. Right, right, right. Yeah. And it's um, so what they want to do is force uh, Times v. Sullivan before the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court, in oh, the I hopes see. that they would overturn it or water it down right. significantly. You know, when you put yourself out, you know, run for public office, um, there are a lot of benefits to that. And and you put yourself in the public eye, you affirmatively take that step. Then there are certain things like critical reviews come with it. Uh, And that's why I say thin skinned politicians. Yeah, Uh, because, you know, it's uh, it's not easy being uh, an elected official certainly, but you do have to have a thick skin. You do. Um, because you'll never please everybody. Right. And if you can sue those people you don't please simply because they said something about you that you didn't like, um, I mean, the standard's a little higher than that, but not by much. Right. Um, so are there any good bills out there, Barbara? There are a few, yes. There's one bill um, by uh, Senator Polsky from Boca Raton um, that uh, provides for transparency in uh, contracts for legal representation. You know, this has been talked about quite a bit uh, about the governor's um, litigation efforts. You know, he's you know these bills are being passed that he's signing into law. And they're questionable whether they meet constitutional standards or not. Don't say gay, the bill against the, the um, uh, well, it just popped out of my head, the um, drag queen shows. And so they, they want exemptions over these or what they, it's not for? exemptions. But what they're doing is the governor and, and his administration are spending millions of dollars in legal fees to defend legislation that was questionable to begin with, particularly, you know, the governor's an attorney with a good education. Um, He certainly knows that that a lot of these bills that he has signed uh, are unconstitutional. So they're being challenged in court and and government is spending a lot of money. I mean, millions of dollars, our dollars, tax dollars um, in defending these cases. And so Senator Polsky's bill would require First, that the attorney general review the contracts for legal representation. This is outside counsel, people who are hired from outside government to represent Florida. Um, and then the AG would have to make a determination. Then the contract, including all of the deliverables, everything would be made available online so that we could go to the website and see how much money is being spent to defend the don't say gay bill or to defend the actions in removing uh, Reedy Creek, the Disney uh, uh, issues. 
you know, because it's really hard to get your hands wrapped around exactly how much is being spent. You have to make a lot of public records requests to get that information. And this would put it all in one spot in the idea of government accountability and transparency. And it's a really, really good idea. Is that a bill Um, that has any backing by the leadership? uh, No. (laughs) <laughs> Not that I've seen. Um, you know, it's it's a really a sad thing because the legislature, as I said, creates dozens of new exemptions every year um, and yet has not done anything to improve access since 1995. Um, there's been, you know, that was the Electronic Records Act that made email public record. 1995. Um, since then, it's been nothing but exemptions, um, although there have been attempts um, to fix certain aspects of the law, like the fees. Um, you know, not many people can afford to pay thousands of dollars to get public records. Um, we've got issues with delays. You know, there are public records requests that have been pending for months now. Which is a violation of law. And the only way you can get them to actually respond to your public records law is to threaten a your request. No, well, and even threats. You know, threats we have work. found uh, that we just have to sue to get access to records because there's no enforcement mechanism in the public records law. So the only way that you can force access to records that you have a right to receive the only way you can force that to happen is filing a lawsuit against government. Which and the again, Florida Center for Government Accountability has done. And right. you have successfully gotten records uh, that they right. were refusing to give you, including uh, records uh, regarding um, the COVID vaccines, correct? And also right. the... the uh, we sued uh, the very first... Well, the COVID lawsuit was the first we filed. We filed that in August of 2021, and it was settled two years later. Um, We filed it against the Department of Health. Uh, DOH settled the lawsuit in October of or September of 2023. They released the records, which they had said for years didn't exist in court. They said those records didn't exist. We were able to get our hands on the records and we distributed them to anyone who wanted them. And then we also uh, sued Governor DeSantis um, over access to the records uh, about the um, flights to Martha's Vineyard, the migrant flights to Martha's Vineyard. We we were successful there. The governor so you has find appealed. out how much money was being spent and what it was being spent on. Right. What? It, how much money was being spent? How How did these people get on the plane? Who was talking? I mean, we got a lot of information that uh, those records were shared with the Miami Herald, which wrote a, a, an award winning series on those flights. Um, the governor has appealed that decision, which doesn't make any sense to me since we got the records. The records yeah. So um, what's to appeal? Um and we've got a lawsuit filed against um, New College, uh, you know, trying to get at the heart of that controversy over why did was the college taken over? What was the issues that were so serious that the governor had to step in and, re, you know, create a new board and change the focus of the school? Um, so yeah, we've, we've filed lawsuits and that's, um, it's a daunting thing, even for an organization 
like ours um, because nobody wants to sue their government. Government should be working for us. Well, you and also instead, have a hollowed out news media, uh, which right. can't afford to file the lawsuits. And I suppose right. the, the the government well, they, can, yeah, can take advantage of yeah. that situation. Yeah, well, exactly. And we're lucky in that we have a, a, a small group of attorneys who works with us who will work on a contingency type basis, knowing that if if we win our lawsuit, they will get their attorney's fees. I, when we settled the case with the Department of Health, DOH had to pay our attorneys $150,000 in legal fees. Um, but it's also a risk because we don't win every lawsuit. Right. And we lose, there's no money in it for them. Um, so it's it really is a service in my way of thinking that they're providing not just to to you know the center and the trident but also to the citizens of the state of florida people were very interested in getting that COVID data and it's a shame it took us two years uh to get that data we um, were just talking to jason garcia that we are about one third of the way through the session and uh, there's always a surprise down the road the bills are often filed before session begins in the middle of a session is there anything you're hearing about that we should be worried about that hasn't been filed yet? Anything you're hearing? Um, one thing I'm a little worried about that I haven't seen and I expected to see it. There was a public records lawsuit um, against um, the governor uh, and um, a public records request had been made of the governor. The governor denied the request and at the trial court, um, the governor's attorneys argued that the governor didn't have to turn over these records because of executive privilege. Oh, that's right. So you're expecting legislation uh, to go right that, because I as I, the courts can't find an exemption, which Judge Dempsey did in that lawsuit. She agreed with the attorneys for the governor and said, yes, the governor has executive privilege. So you think that might come up uh, before the session ends? I, I've been looking for it. And the way that happens is committee bills. Uh, the filing deadline is over. Uh, they have to have waived their rules, which they waive their rules all the time to the point where you wonder why they even have rules. Um, or a, a proposed committee bill. And right. that's what the vehicle would likely be. Okay, so because everybody keep, keep no, your eyes. nothing to stand on. Everybody there's keep no their eyes open for this. Uh, we are just yes. about out of time here. I uh, want to thank uh, Barbara Peterson, the executive director for the Florida Center for Government Accountability, for joining us today. Barbara, if people want to reach out to your organization, uh, how can they contact you? Uh, they can go to our website which is very simple, flcga.org, and click on the, uh, on the staff button, and that will go right to my inbox. Okay. Thanks so much, Barbara. Appreciate you joining us on uh, this uh, special edition of Tuesday Cafe. Thank you. Thank you. It's WMF Tampa.